Welcome back, everyone, to Merge Conflict, your weekly development podcast. I am one of your hosts, James Montemagno, and with me, as always, the one, the only, Mr. Frank Kruger. How's it going, buddy? Hey, hey, how you doing? I, I feel like you're, you're like setting me up for a fight here or something. Do we have a match going on here or something? <laughs> I think so. I just wanted to really bring in that, hey, hey, and here we go. Um, <laughs> oh, I just got to yes. bring in Radio James from time to time. It's fun. Yes. Well, we have some exciting topics because it is episode 350. Wow, 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 wow. Uh, these, these, these are the times 10 <laughs> episodes off by one once in a while because we can't count. And that means it's a lightning round. And that means we have five times, six times the amount of work we normally do. How many uh, topics are we actually covering today, James? So I think that what we're going to do is we usually try to cover six. I got, we got at least four, but then I think we're going to do a lightning, lightning topic where we do listener feedback questions. Oh, okay. These are the best. I love yes. listener questions. Yeah. And everyone, you can reach us on the tweeters, the discords, the, the links on the shows. We're there. We read them. We don't always participate, but we read them. <laughs> Correct. But before we get there, the real topic number one is GPT-4. It's out. I thought 3.5 was like... You know, the, the kitten's meow is like here. Now we're GPT-4. It can do anything. It can turn my my a picture of my refrigerator contents into recipes for a week. <laughs> and it can plan my dinners. And it can it can plan vacations. And it can, can be my speaking coach. It can do all the things, Frank, GPT-4. So much 0.5 better than, than G, GTP, GPT-3.5. <laughs> what, what's, what's going well, on here? There's a lot of excitement this week. It's 0.5 better, obviously. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure how uh, GPT got that 3.5. I, I, I'm not sure where that 0.5 ever came from, but whatever. Let's ignore it. Yeah. Uh, GPT 4's out. I actually got access. I didn't think I would, but I joined the waiting list as soon as I could because I wanted to try it out. And more important, um, I, I wonder if people even make this distinction anymore. It's all going to be erased in history, but there is a difference between chat GPT and just GPT. GPT is a predictor. Chat GPT is something designed to be helpful. <laughs> it's funny, mm. but that that needs to be a constraint built into the system. Anyway, they released it for both. So you can do the um, chat interface and everything with GTP4 already, and I'm already saying it. We got to rename this thing. I love it. So it's bigger, obviously. It knows so much more. It's more up to date, obviously. I was actually getting into a debate with GPT-3 the other day because it kept making a math mistake and I just couldn't prove to it that it kept making the math mistake. It just kept making it over and over again. So I can't wait to get into some big discourse with the four. But you know what the big difference is, is the uh, amount of data that you can feed into it. This is kind of the context for the model. So if I want to write like a movie script or have it write a movie script, if it can only output 4,000 characters, then that's basically the length of the movie script. Otherwise, it starts to forget, or I mean, it doesn't forget, it doesn't know anymore what it said in the very beginning. So there can be inconsistencies, it can go off on tangents, who knows, bad things. But the new one, uh, so the old limit used to be 4,000 tokens. Uh, the normal GPT-4 is 8,000 tokens, and then there's a huger one that's 32,000 tokens. And I was saying to you earlier, uh, that's the size of a novel. That is a full book that this thing can now generate, which is very impressive. Well, that's wild. That's super 
ridiculous and awesome all at the same time, I would say. Um, what with this GPT four, you know, I think the biggest thing that I heard is not only the size of this, but also that it can do a lot more. It can do image processing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a fun little discovery a few years ago that multimodal data is actually good for these networks and multimodal, it's actually multimedia. (laughs) So text and images actually helps it to learn. Go figure, you know? Um, so that 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 was kind of discovered with like the clip algorithm that happened a couple of years ago. That algorithm has been used everywhere now. And I think I mean it's almost like they're running out of data too. Like they're throwing the entire internet at this thing. So it's just like what other data can we get? Well, pictures. Uh we've we've had great success with pictures with um you know, all the all the dollies and your stable diffusions and all that stuff. So they kind of got that figured out so just tossed it on in right more data just i mean they're gonna be throwing podcasts in soon too right so we're we're just all gonna be feeding the giant ai monster machine well i was thinking about that is why isn't there just voice and why isn't why are we throwing in every single podcast all the things that are out there like that like what's stopping it from doing that money (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, oh. The, the hardest part about AIs is always data collection, data curation, um, uh, along with all the multimedia discoveries. It turns out the better the data is you put into these things, the better they learn and the better they perform in the end. So it's not that we can't do it. We could throw some audio at it, but maybe it'd be unstable. Maybe it wouldn't actually help it or anything. But it's also just you, you got to collect up all that data. You got to annotate it to some degree. Uh, it's it'll happen. It's definitely going to happen. I mean, when you do video, it turns out video needs audio. So you might as well do audio first. So I, I imagine that'll be real soon. Okay. Gotcha. What other, so, so multimodal, see, I, when, you know, when I heard that on Technium Ride Home thing is I was like, oh, like multiple modal windows yeah. <laughs> on a machine. But the first thing that I thought about is like, oh, instead of it processing one thing at a time, it can process multiple things. So for example, can you throw images and text together into a single query pipeline into GPT uh, things now, or things could be built in that way? Uh, e- yes. Uh, I'm not sure about its limits, though. Is it like one picture, one text? Um, does mm. it keep a memory of them? I don't know the details. Um, but yeah, it, it transforms the image in the same way it transforms the text into the mysterious latent space of the neural network. And from that latent space is where it projects up and generates data. So it's, it's that's why the... So multimodal, modal is short for modality, and it's unfortunately a word from the um, probability people. So if you think about like, if you like plot the histogram of some data, it might have one bump in it, it has one mode, might have two bumps in it, two modes, two modalities. So it's just an old, it's just a silly word from the mathematicians. But it's basically just saying there's two distinct things being input into it, in this case, images and text, but there is absolutely nothing stopping video and audio and all those coming in. But uh, no, we don't need to get ahead of ourselves. It was funny, even on Twitter, um, hashtag GPT-5 was trending (laughs) just as GPT-4 came out. And I thought that was hilarious because like we can all see that we're on a hockey stick curve right now. So now 
now it's mm-hmm. just a race of who can uh, collect the most data and spend the most money as quickly as possible. And we're seeing companies not only roll out new GPT type features into their applications, they're figuring out monetization on it. Uh, we obviously saw uh, Bing in the Edge browser. I have a big button that says ask right now. I can, I can start a conversation right now. I just literally <laughs> hovered over it. I could say, you know, tell me, to give me, I was like, give me a summary of uh, GPT-4 and the main use cases. And like the thing here is now in real time, this is going to go out and gather all this data for me, uh, whether it's in the model or on the internet and pull it back, right? That's here. So it just wrote an entire uh, book of what GPT-4 yeah. is for me. <laughs> Anyways, so it's all there, right? A whole bunch of things. And, and Bing's rolled out. And it's using that there. We also saw with this stuff, Duolingo, I, I read, is now basically having a a, a, a a bigger tier to their Duolingo application on iOS, where basically you can have a, a training session uh, with AI around topics. So imagine you're going on a trip uh, to Italy and you want to uh, order something at a restaurant and, or go into um, uh, at the airport or you are looking to uh, get a coffee or what, you know, you could, it'll basically use AI to, to generate conversations and do real back and forth with you. And then at the end of it, it will analyze everything that you've said and you've done um, in the correct language and it'll, it'll, it'll use AI to give you rec- AI recommendations based off it. So we're seeing all sorts of cool stuff on that end, which is really neat. And additionally to our second topic, cause we're already behind <laughs> is there's new tools for us to use too. Now you talked about using the chat GPT APIs from open AI. However, there's something else out there that Microsoft literally just released today as we're recording, and I just stumbled upon it because, I mean, I've known about it, but um, something called Semantic Kernel, which is all about AI and LLM, which are large language <laughs> models, which I'm assuming GPT is a large language model. Is that correct? Did I do it right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Giant. Uh, this is a cool one. You introduced me to the Semantic Kernel a little brief. Uh, I, I'm not too deep into it, everyone, but I'm going to give my best shot at describing it because I think it's kind of clever what's going on here. Uh, the, the problem statement is this. Uh, we have these large language models, these GPT things, but how do we, um, A, how do we leverage them in our apps? But B, how do we actually talk to them like in a friendly mm-hmm. way? You know, in the same way that we don't, although we all love SQL, it's so much easier to have like a little ORM to wrap your SQL queries and do like link stuff with them. In the same way, uh, the semantic kernel library seems to be a neat way to kind of create functions instead of creating prompts directly. Uh, so let's say we want uh, an app that can generate recipes based upon what's in your refrigerator. And in in some ways, these prompts are Mad Libs. <laughs> you know, you can kind of write out a template and then put a few holes in it. And then, um, you know, just have the user fill in the holes and put the data that's needed. Uh, and then have the network generate stuff. And then you can extract what you need from the network. And all that is 
fun the first time you do it, but then gets a little bit painful. And the semantic kernel library is trying to add a little bit of formalism to creating those Mad Libs and creating good functional interfaces to these language models that, uh, yeah, okay, right. So it, it's it's a it's a it's an ORM <laughs> for these large language models. I'm, I'm going to be very reductive, everyone. I'm being reductive with the Mad Libs, but let's just keep going with all that. Yeah, it, it seems really cool because one for us developers, this you know semantic kernel you can think of it as a SDK basically that lets you mix conversational pro you know programming languages um, with the latest LLMs prompts, right? And they started with C Sharp. So C Sharp is the first one. And they're going to do a Python one as well, which is cool. And they're even looking at JavaScript as well. But this is pretty neat because it really enables you to sort of create these things that they call them, uh, they call them skills and planners and connectors and memories. Like basically they have extensibility points out of the box that you ask it and translate it into different things. So what they say is like, you know, who is this thing for? And it basically would be for like me. Like I woke up one day and the AI was everywhere. And my boss was like, we got to go do something. And you're like, ah, what do I do? I can't learn everything from scratch. It's like, hey, you know, here's the lightweight ORM over some stuff. But it gives you the ability to integrate fast, extend. Um, it has really good prompting. And then also um, you can obviously integrate stuff into, you know, native code and be flexible in your, your prompting. So I think it's pretty cool. The documentation is interesting. They have a bunch of samples. Like they obviously have a chatbot, you know, sample, but they also have a book creator sample that lets mm -hmm. you basically create this concept of a, a, a planner and this skill to create a book based off of different prompts. So that's kind of wild. Now I do still think like I'm still reading this stuff and I took the LinkedIn learning course that they have. And to me, I'm still, still advanced, right? I think, I just think, you know, I still got a little bit to learn, uh, in general, but I do like, for example, they have a LLM AI. So large language model AI 101, I would say. And mm -hmm. it's like, here's an overview. You know, how does LLM AI, LMA, LLM AI relate to chat GPT? This is great, right? It's like the popular chat GPT system is powered by an LLM AI model invented by OpenAI based on ChatGPT3, now four. And you can think of ChatGPT mm -hmm. as an application built on top of that language model, specifically tuned to engage with interactive chats. Like, oh, that's cool. Like that literally does it. And then they have one on models and prompts and tokens and embeddings. So at least in this sense, oh, cool. Like I could just read some normal Microsoft documentation and get this kind of uh, quick skilling, if you will, into this, which I think is neat. Yeah. And I, I think the part where um, uh, the learning is a little bit of a steep curve is because I gave like the most basic use of it. They also made it pretty sophisticated. I mean, they were basically designing whole data flows that you can use to almost architect your app around these kinds of concepts. So it's not just, you know, use it to make one little function. If you want, you could make a very AI-centric app and use this library to its full capabilities. So I think that's why uh, the documentation is big and a, a little, uh, they had to introduce a lot of metaphors, a lot of concepts to catch on to, not even a lot, like four. So I think you'll be good once you, once, once it kind of clicks in your head, but the complexity is definitely from the fact that they made it ridiculously powerful.
Yeah. And they have all these configurations with like JSON files and like these backends and all this other stuff that you can do. So a good example is they have all these C-sharp notebooks that you can run with .NET Interactive and basically Jupyter notebooks. And you can say, for example, hey, go load this skill. And they have a bunch of skills. So they have one that's like load the fun skill and they have a coding skill and they have all these other skills. And it's like, you know, run, um, give me a, a joke. And there's like, a, you know, and this inside the skill, give me a joke that's like, time travel to dinosaur age and then like output stuff basically. Right. So you can give it these different inputs and outputs, the type of different model and the different thing that you want, and it'll give you back more context aware scenarios. So it's cool. I just like that there's new things happening. And I also like that it's a uh, launch on .NET first. That's really cool. Yeah. And, it, and it's a clever idea. Like it never occurred to me. Oh yeah, of course we need an ORM for talking to these AI models because otherwise they are just kind of, a little too general purpose. Yeah, I agree. All right, next up, we're gonna get away, Frank. What from? From? Yeah, I, I thought know. we only talk about AI now. Nah. <laughs> no, no. There's been a real change, everyone. We we used to never talk about. It. Now it's all we talk about. I love it. All, it's all <laughs> we talk about every day. So we got a, a question uh, here off of Mastodon. Have you heard of Mastodon? Yeah, I've been tooting on the Mastodon every so often. <laughs> Not that often. From, I don't know, if, uh, Florian, Florian on dot, .net dot .social. So there's, there, there's a .net account there now as well. Um, so uh, Florian asks, um, if we would do a, sp- a whole episode on, on this topic, which Ooh. we won't, we'll do a lightning topic. <laughs> okay. uh, here, we've, we've covered this about 5 billion times, but I think he was thinking specifically around, you know, you got a bunch of code already, you have like iCircuit and Kalka and all this other stuff. But he prompts this. He said, what, Frank, if you lost all of your code, all of your code vanished, okay? <laughs> this, mm. I mean, this is, this is a I good like chat it. GPT. Mystery. All Does of it you know about my uh, backup systems? <laughs> Something I don't know. <laughs> 18 Dropboxes. Uh, you lose all of your code. Everything is gone. You wake up tomorrow, all of your code is gone. And you need to rewrite your applications from scratch. What would you do? He specifically wants to know, would you start over with C Sharp? Would it be done in Maui, Avalonia? Would it be Flutter? He specifically wants your thoughts on Flutter, even though we've given him 20 times on this podcast. <laughs> would it be something else? Would you do native stack? Frank, what would you do if everything vanished? I'll see. That, that is an excellent question. And I think, um, I think, hmm. It's uh look everyone I'm going to give the most frank answer here right so just just deal with it I'm sorry I you're asking for my opinion right so I'm going to give it uh one thing I kind of regret not doing 10 15 years ago is just writing my own programming language and just using that because I hate depending on other people turns out and I think I could write a compiler and maintain a compiler much more easily than I can keep up with people's crazy versioning systems and everything like that so not only would I be Okay, look, I'd be sad because I want to have income for a while. <laughs> but I would enjoy a rewrite of iCircuit, like a, a real reason to do it. I would enjoy a rewrite of Kelka. Maybe not Continuous. Continuous was a lot of work. <laughs> but um, for other apps like that, um, I, I see how this could be a full episode. We could really get into this. But it's every engineer's dream to do a rewrite 
of their apps and I think mm. I would fall into it and I'd probably spend two years per app and it would be terrible. But in the end, I would get something, especially because I would probably invent my own programming language along the way. But a slightly more serious answer. Um, I have a few apps that are Apple apps only. I'd probably just rewrite those into Swift if I had zero intentions of ever bringing them over to other platforms. Um, but for the cross-platform apps, I would probably stick with uh, C-sharp, F-sharp kind of stuff. If for no other reason than I'm a specialist, I know the community, I know the tooling. All tooling has pros and cons, everyone. And I know most of the pros and cons. I, I keep discovering a few here and there, but I know most of the pros and cons of the current tooling. So for my cross-platform stuff, I'd probably wouldn't change anything. Uh, for platform-specific, Apple-specific, I, I might do a little bit of Swift. Yeah, I've and I and I responded to which is a very similar uh, response. I said, you know, I think it's a good question. Um, you know, it's for us to do an actual episode if if it was just really around Flutter, I would just need to spend tons of time with Flutter and so would you to get a, give our actual representations, but I did say, you know, um that we would do a lightning topic on it, so we totally do it. So, mm-hmm. we're totally doing it. Uh, I said in general, I said, I feel like for me personally, it would be very much the same. Like I would most likely just stick with .NET and C Sharp because that's who I am. That's I'm a C Sharp and .NET developer. I'm about to be 37. I don't have time and or the need or want really to learn new programming languages, new tools, new things, in my personal opinion. If it ain't broke, I don't, you know, it's totally good to go. And I and I love the ecosystem and the community around it. And it's where I'm at today. Um now it'd be different if like the, it didn't exist, right? Then that's another question. What if I couldn't do it in .NET? Well, where would I go? And that's a great question too. Um, but I do think that, like you said, probably if it wasn't C Sharp or .NET, I'd probably just end up going native stack. Like when I started the journey with you know Xamarin development thirteen, no, twelve years ago, thir- ten years ago, thirteen years ago, something like that. Thirteen years ago, yeah, like. 12 and a half years ago, whatever it is, it's a long time ago is what I'm saying. We're in a very different place than we are today, not only for cross-platform, but also for the individual platforms themselves. Like Android development is so much different than, and so many more options than it was 12 and a half years ago. Same thing with uh, uh, Apple development ecosystem, not only the amount of devices, but what they've done with Swift UI and also Android Compose. And uh, other, you know, cross-platform frameworks, you know, for me, of course, that's the thing is I'm a C-sharp .NET developer. I not only just write mobile apps, but I write obviously desktop apps. I write backends. I write, you know, Mm -hmm. functions. I write, you know, all sorts of things uh, with, with .NET. So that's why I'm in this ethos and I like to keep it all together, full, full stack of .NET. However, yeah, if, if I, if I was just targeting something very, very specific, and I had lots of dependencies on third-party integrations or something like that, maybe the native stack would work good for me, right? It, it really is always based on the use case. I've always said this, Frank, and I'm going to keep saying it is like, it's what works best for you is you mm-hmm. as a developer and also for your app. Every app is very different. You know, I just put numbers on a screen and I can kind of do that in anything, <laughs> but I do it best in .NET. That's what I would say. Uh, but yeah, I do yeah. like .NET that there's there's a lot, right? You not only have Maui, you have Avalon, you have Uno, you have a bunch of other, li- you have the core root underneath that's built on top of it. So lots of options is what I'm saying, Frank. Lots of options. 
Yeah, and I just realized I didn't give any um, uh, flutter opinions. Uh, it's mostly because I don't have them either. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's nice. Uh, I wouldn't want to switch over to Dart just because I don't see anything in Dart, the programming language, that's not available in a million other mm. languages. Like it, I, I love the language designer, but the language itself isn't anything I'm begging for. Uh, and then the one the one thing I do love about the, it, though, is its rendering engine and all mm. of that. There's nothing stopping .NET from having a rendering engine like that. It's just none of us have written one. <laughs> and uh, Microsoft doesn't seem to want to write a high-performance graphics rendering engine. Gee, I wonder why. Because it turns out game engines are a lot of work, and they haven't wanted to invest in it. So, uh, But we do have game engines. You could just write your app in Unity. <laughs> yeah, that's totally yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's long-winded. We probably could do a whole episode on all of that. But if I did, it, assuming your question is a little bit of if you could start over in a blank slate, I would totally just write my own language. Of course you I know would. I, I would. I would make it beautiful. It'd be perfect for one. Uh, all right, let's get to some super lightning topics. Um, let's say I want to create an application just for the desktop. Can I do that with that in Maui, ask Greg? Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, there was a hesitancy there because like just for the desktop, like was there a just in there? It, it could mean a million different things, but yes, absolutely. Um, they come out a little bit fat, to be honest. <laughs> they come out a little big, but you absolutely can do it. We even did a, an experiment live on the show a few weeks ago. So we did it for, um, a Maui Windows app. But you can do it just fine with a, a Maui Mac app if you get all your signing right. And then um, are there other desktops? Linux? Sorry, Linux. Uh, your Maui app's not going to go on Linux. Though, though there is a port out there if you want to get crazy and try to run that yourself. Yeah. And the other opposite point is true, too, is like you could just do it for Android or just do it for iOS. Like there's the, the Dunham Maui is a is a framework to build apps for one or multiple platforms, right? If you just want an iOS app or just want a Mac app, you could just use .NET Maui. And that's what I would do. Like even though earlier I said I might go down the native stack route based on the application. But if like I was doing before with Xamarin Forms, like I have apps that are just on iOS that are just Xamarin Forms or just .NET yeah. Maui, right? You just remove the TFMs or just don't <laughs> release the app. Leave the TFM in there and then just don't release it on that platform. Problem solved. All right, Bjorn I- asks, we apparently did some episode on IoT. He said, you didn't talk about stepper motors, which you can control the speed of without any sensor using only a cheap driver controller. And motors can also be inexpensive or salvaged from old gear. Nice. Great. I, I love this feedback. You're absolutely right with some caveats. Hashtag almost right. 99% right. Uh, uh, the neat thing about stepper motors is when you're commanding them, you tell them to just move a tiny little bit. <laughs> move oh. a tiny little bit this direction, tiny little bit that direction. And if you mo- tell it to move a tiny little bit at different speeds, it moves at different speeds. Great. <laughs> what a beautiful motor. <laughs> They're fantastic. In fact, um, I built a giant uh, automatic organizing armoire using giant mm-hmm. stepper motors because they are awesome and they they do exactly what I just said. Now, can I, can I give a correction? Um, yeah. All of that is true if the motor is infinitely powerful and you know exactly what loads are going to be on it because it could miss a step, James. It could, it could miss oh. two steps 
And then guess what? You're off by two steps. <laughs> and that may or may not mean anything, but in robotics, uh, it's you don't want to actually rely on the stepper motor itself. So you still have to put an external sensor on to give a full feedback loop. There is no feedback in a stepper motor in general. There's ways to cheat, but you'll still want to add feedback to it. So, but anyway, really appreciate it. Stepper motors, they are indeed fantastic, but they are not perfect either. Boom. From Rees. Why is there no down in Maui on the web? And who is doing anything to solve that, Frank? Oh, no. Did, is this a real question or are you just asking this? It's a real question. <laughs> I may have summarized it differently. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I have been talking about doing a Wii version of Maui for the longest time, right? And I've even started it three different times. In the past, I used the excuse of Maui kept changing. So it was too hard. But on my Twitch show for the last two weeks, we got a button click working on the web from a Maui app. James, I support the button click example. I'm done, right? <laughs> Ship it. Done. I mean, what more, what more do apps need to be? It, well, that button not only clicks, but there's also text on that button, too. Oh, yeah. Took me a while to figure out the property. They, they they changed some things around from how it worked in Xamarin Forms. It took me a while. I'm very proud of that button for it working. Uh, but was the question more general purpose? Like where is Maui on the web? Um, yeah. I guess I I guess in general I I don't have an answer for that. I mm. think Microsoft's been pretty quiet on it. I don't think they have an official statement. I'll I'll leave that for you to hem and haw about. But as far as I know, I don't know anything official from Microsoft. So that's why I've been putting in a little bit of effort recently of making at least something happen. Yeah, I think there's two things to look at, you know, when 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 you hear the stance is, you know, there's Blazor hybrid, so taking your Blazor application and bringing it into .NET Maui, that's a great example of uh, taking a web app and putting it there on the other flippity flop, um, which would be, I have a bunch of XAML and C-sharp code. I want to put that on the web magically. Then you can look over to the ecosystem around .NET with Uno and Avalonia that, that do have WebAssembly versions of doing that stuff. And maybe those fit your need. Maybe they don't. Um, I have built a website with Frank's Wii and Xamarin Forms days and it fit my need at the time. Um, but there's that. Yeah. So there you go. Yep. I don't think much has actually changed in the last couple of years. Uh, I just want to be a third option for the two option, two other options out there, which are good options, I should yeah. say. All right. From Ilya, I can answer this one. What tool do you use to automatically create the transcripts for the podcast? It's really neat. It is really neat, Ilya. We use two different sources. Um, sometimes we use Zencaster, which is what we've used forever to record our podcasts. And then it does post-production. And most of the time now they have newer versions where it actually pumps out a transcript, which is really neat. Um, but beyond that, I've been using a program called Descript. And Descript is sort of an all-in-one podcast or any audio editor and video and this. And one of the things it does is transcripts. So we also use that um, if for some reason Zencaster doesn't pump it out. Um, I believe also Word, Microsoft Word has like a login thing where you can like just, or an add-in where you can just like give it the file and, you know, and, and then it'll give you a transcript in Word. Like that's also an option too. I haven't used that though, but there you go. Boom, done. All right, next question. This is an interesting one. I think I have an answer um, from Sam. Short question here. Is there a way to identify a user if they uninstall and reinstall 
an application besides re having them log in. They say the use case is that they have data on the server and they want to offer the nice experience that if the user installs the app again, they get their data back. Some games seem to do this. Can it be done? And how can we get some sort of user identifier thingy at all? Oh, this is, doesn't this go back to our amazing account system we created for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our answer to everything is create yourself a GUID and throw that in the iCloud key store, in the key store, the keychain, whatever. And that thing gets backed up and persists between app installs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a pretty easy way to create uh, persist a user ID the data itself, you probably want to host on your own server or something like that. But my recommendation, and it hasn't changed in 10 years, <laughs> has been to just create a small amount of data, the minimum you need to create the good experience, and throw that into the uh, key store. Yep. That is exactly what you do. It's all about that. And in fact, there's a few applications that do it correct and a lot of applications that don't do it correct. And <laughs> I'm sort of fine either way. If I uninstall the app and reinstall the app, I almost am okay with you making me yeah. re-log in. Like that seems okay. But like, for example, Robinhood, um, I've uninstalled and reinstalled it a bunch and it just is like I'm logged in because it <laughs> is putting that information inside of the keychain, which again, like you said, is, which is, um, you know, there always even persists uh, on install. It's always in there. So they just look at that data. And then what you'd probably want to do is like, there's probably a refresh token in there. So you probably want to refresh the token, make sure that's still valid, Yeah. you know? Um, so you want to do some sort of stuff there and then revalidate that. Now, if there is um, in-app purchases, you could obviously just restore in-app purchases as well, right? But you could also persist that on your servers and pull down that data. Um, you don't really want like a database lingering around. Like when they uninstall your app, like your your that stuff gets uninstalled. So you'd re-pull down the data that you need when the app loads. But that's exactly what you need, a small amount of data, like Frank said, and boom, good to go. All right, next one. This is fascinating. Based off the same exact thing, last lightning topic, topic of topics for the lightning topics <laughs> and one more topic. From Alexander, what do you think I should do if I want to implement something like a mini user account? So a user of my app can use a paid version across different platforms. I'm working on a system for my app where my database has table of devices by idea. That's a bad idea. Another table of user licenses and a linking table. When a user wants to use their paid subscription on a new device, they go to the old device, ask for the code, interesting, then enter the code in the new device. Then a new entry is added to the licensing device linking table. In this way, the users can share license. Oh, interesting. Potentially to other people without the Mm -hmm. need for me to keep track of passwords. Yes, passwords are evil. Is this a good idea or a horrible idea? Alexander asks. I love it. (laughs) You love it? With all these kinds of authentication systems, you really got to think it through. And I'm I'm just hearing this for the first time. In general, I'm okay with it. I'm a little suspicious about tracking devices, but I guess you can use the trick we just previously mentioned, make your own device ID and use that for persistence and things like that. Uh, In general, it's always tricky when uh, presumably you're going to be transmitting that ID from the client up to the server. It's kind of a bad idea idea to just trust that. But, uh, you know, in the end, you are going to need, 
I think I would prefer like what we kind of designed for you where you create another entity, which is an invitation. And then those invitations can maybe be revoked later on instead mm-hmm. of having direct mapping between the account and the devices. I think I would almost want a third entity in there. Maybe that's what uh, they were referring to as the link. And in that case, if you could maybe revoke those links later on, maybe I want to revoke uh, the link I gave to James or something like that. I think that'd be a nice feature, maybe a necessary feature, but it's hard for me to tell if it's even necessary. Passwordless, I get you. I'm not seeing anything terrible with it off the top of my head, but think it through. And if you've already thought it through, then give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of these questions are older, so there's that. Uh, but that being said, uh, let, let us know if you did do it or not, or if we didn't answer your question, or if you've already done some cool stuff right into the show, MergeConflict.fm. But I agree. I think that on that one, um, uh, I think what you would do is if you want to create a way to share licenses, you have a way of creating a family plan, right? Like I have an Apple iCloud account and I have a one, you know, Microsoft account and I, and I add folks to it and they get a code and then bingo, bango, you should probably just have username and passwords. That's probably what I would do. I'm sorry. It's like, it's probably the easiest in my personal opinion. Uh, and, but I would do like, that's what you want is like, you want a family account and you can say, oh, you can share this with XYZ, bingo, bango, done. All right, Frank Kruger onto the last topic. We covered it in our exclusive Patreon episode this week that was 20 plus minutes long um surviving the winters over here and it's a perfect time because we got a sauna and saunas are awesome and i'm a big fan <laughs> we went to new york recently went to the sauna at the uh, bathhouse and we went to our local rec uh, area here and we also went to the saunas and we fell in love with saunas saunas like dry saunas or even like a more uh, humid tropical sauna experience. We got a sauna, very excited about it. And then I've realized that there's a lot of other folks that have saunas. I may recommend that everyone should look into saunas, whether they're local <laughs> over at your place. I feel fantastic after a sauna. You don't need a cold plunge after a sauna, but you know, in Finland, like two, like 60% of people have saunas at their house. And also people in Finland live longer than they do here in America. I'm just saying sauna culture really great, Frank. You should look into saunas and or that. And um, (laughs) I've learned a whole bunch about them. We're learning new things every day, but saunas are fantastic. And I, very privileged thing for me to say, but I think they can be, they're accessible because like I said, we just went to our local rec center for a few bucks, boom, got to hang out. There's other activities you can do there as well. Um, Anyways, saunas, I'm just saying, I don't know if there's one on the island, but you could be the person on the island that has a sauna, Frank, I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure there's some saunas on the island. Definitely. Uh, I, <laughs> this ad was brought to you by Big Sauna. I, I love how big of a convert you are. <laughs> I just It's your thing now. I'm a sauna guy. It's, it's what I do. It's what I think about. It's what I look for. It's, 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 what I, it's the reason to travel. My raison d'etre. It's just, you know, the whole pr- purpose. Uh, I, I just, I'm just going to have to live in your shadow and imagine the wonderful saunas. Uh, I am perhaps I'll track one down on this little Island. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's it. Yeah. If people are sauna people, let us know if you have sauna recommendations. Uh, we do a lot of like, we're into some, some scents. You can put some scents in there and make it feel like smell like <laughs> you know, birch wood or whatever. 
Um, yeah. Anyways, I was always the uh, gas myself in a steam room kind of person. I, I like to get into a room that I, I could only breathe in for about 10 minutes and then had to come running out of that. That was my style. Oh, nice. Yeah. I steam rooms are intense. I like a steam yeah. room as well. Uh, Heather's not as much of a steam room fan, but I, I like good steam room too. So I get steamed, steamed up. Um, <laughs> ooh, last question. Some people reached out to me because everyone knows I'm a mint mobile user. Mint mobile. Mm. Important. Exclusive. We were converts of Mint Mobile over a year and a half ago, and Mint Mobile just got purchased. Oh, by whom? T-Mobile. Oh, funny. <laughs> which of is what? Which is what Mint Mobile runs on. Uh, so, uh, wow. So Mint Mobile, which is a subsidiary of Ultra Mobile, which is uh, owned by someone else, it's a long history here. That entire thing got purchased by. T-Mobile for $1.35 billion. Good work, Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool, hooking it up. Now, Ryan Reynolds didn't own the entire company. He just owned mm-hmm. a, a good portion of Mint Mobile and then scaled out through his marketing of that. And he was even on um, Jim Cramer's show, Mad Money, and was like, he's like, I don't change the product. He's like, I just marketed it and did some <laughs> different promos around it. And just, you know, marketing is marketing's marketing. You market it too. It's a good product. I'm a big fan of Mint Mobile. We do the $15 a month plan. We pay for a whole year, so it's $180, and we get nice. four gigs of data, and that's it. Bingo, bang. That's very cheap. Saved us a lot of money. Works everywhere. I like it. People have asked me, am I concerned about the T-Mobile acquisition? Uh, you know, I don't know. T-Mobile also has like <laughs> Metro PCS, and they have other subsidiaries of MV, MVNOs. Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll get more perks, actually, because T-Mobile will slap some stuff in there, but they are keeping Ryan and his team on. Uh, as well for like marketing and other stuff like that. So we'll just kind of see. Uh, it's funny to be out of t- T-Mobile then back in T-Mobile, but <laughs> you know that that's what's going to happen. You know, I, I, one of those was anything that's too big, too popular, someone's going to try to scoop it up at some point. And there's yeah. a price point, and apparently it's one point three five billion dollars. Frank, amazing. That's a lot. Of uh, I hate to be a cynic, but my guess is within three years the price will double. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Or no, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, I'll be very, very fascinated to watch it. That is for sure. Uh, other people asked uh, this. I was listening to the latest. Uh, so these are now just people asking different questions in real life or on I Twitter. And are, you, are you just stopping people on the street right now? Is that what's happening? Yeah, James in the street. Do, do. Um, <laughs> the SVB fallout, Silicon Valley Bank, you know about this and all the other fallouts that have happened. Yeah, I'm not a banking specialist, but everyone tells me it's absolutely nothing like 2008. And I trust people because everyone was right about 2008 in 2008. So I yes. trust them. <laughs> well, a lot of people have asked me, well, James, you've talked a lot about uh, on your Twitters and on other things. Yeah, I get myself in trouble because I use all these fancy things mm-hmm. uh, about the wealth fronts and the betterments and the, <laughs> the Marcuses of the world, all these things. So people are like, oh, what do you do? Is you going to change all of your investment strategy? Blah, 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 blah. Um, well, there's a few things. No, um, you know, it's 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 very uh, different, you know, um, investments versus savings accounts. Those are two different things insured differently. The real reason, like you said, uh, is that, you know, the FDIC insures savings account up to $250,000. So that was like one of the first things with the, the banks. And then, of course, the federal government came in and then there's banks supporting banks and this big fund and the stuff. So in general, I didn't have any money in SVB. Obviously, I'm not a start- startup, <laughs> but uh, it didn't really worry me. And then additionally, 
how um um, obviously Marcus is from Goldman Sachs. So that is a high yield savings account. And that is just a single bank. So there's obviously the 250 on that. And and I don't have that much money sitting around. So I, didn't, I don't have anything <laughs> to fare about. If you don't have two, over $250,000 in a bank, you don't have much to worry about. So I don't. Um, then the other thing is, well, what about the other you know, betterment and wealth fronts of the world? Well, those are investing uh, things, but they do have a cash account. Now, it's actually pretty fascinating about those we did have listeners that had a, a bunch of money uh, sitting around, is that those are actually uh, insured um, by up to, up to $2 million because they work and spread your money across different banks. Um, so all of your money isn't in a single bank. They have partner banks. So that's actually kind of fascinating there. Uh, if, you, anyways, if you're interested in any of this, you can write into the show, but I'll also put uh, my affiliate sign-up links in the bottom for all those things if you're really super interested in stuff. Uh, we don't really do a lot of podcasts on investing. It's not really a, uh, a vesting thing, nor, um, mm-hmm. is this or is this investing advice? This is just for entertainment purposes. Don't sue me. I'm not, a, a, anything. I'm not a lawyer. Um, um, but people had asked me, so I felt like, you know, lightning topic round would be of, of interest or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's just it's like where do you start? Like it's at the tip of the iceberg with all this kind of stuff. So we'll 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 pivot into an investment podcast eventually. I think yes. that's what happens. But um, <laughs> hey, if, if you have to spread sp- spread your millions around multiple banks, I think I think that's a good problem to have. Yeah, there you go. Then you're good to go. Yeah, it's not me. I have uh, I think I have like sixty dollars, so perfect, done. I wasn't worried about my sixty dollars. That is for sure. Um, anyways, well, yeah, anyway, I, that's gonna I, do. I, Go sorry, I was gonna say I'm not, I I I don't know if I'm a startup anymore, but I definitely didn't have any money from them either. So unaffected, no. unaffected. Uh, all right, well, thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's merge conflict lightning ish topics. Um, hope that you enjoyed it, and until next time, I'm James Montemagno. and I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.